And now, coming to you live from the Waldorf Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strand, Gary K. Wolf, and very special guest Kids Johnson on the Coot Street Podcast! <laughs> oh, I'm just, I'm just watching the little graph on my thing here, and it, that was really a spectacular burst of energy there. Welcome back, Kidge. Kidge is one of our regulars now, probably maybe our most regular, and you're glad to have you whenever we can. Well, it's delightful to be back. I always love talking to you guys, and uh, having an excuse to do it just makes it better. How's life in sunny Kansas? Oh, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> Actually, Gary's got it worse than I do right now, but uh, I drove up here um, because I'm on uh, a sunny Mount Oread, except for the sunny part, um, and uh, we have a little over a foot of snow and temperature in the teens, and uh, all the college girls are out anyway in their scanty outfit looking pretty miserable, <laughs> so it makes me grateful I'm 30 plus years out of that. Um, right this minute, <laughs> but Gary's got it worse than I do. I think it's much it's worse here. Winter, isn't it's been, this is this is probably the worst winter, at least in 30 years in Chicago, in that we get days. I mean, 36, 40 hours of continual below zero temperatures, and then it warms up to 20, and then it snows, and then the snow Why? ends, and temperature plunges. And it, right now, the temperature is seven or eight degrees outside, um, and it's it's a it's a good time to stay in and get reading done and so forth. I suppose there's part of me that thinks bad weather is probably one of the things that promoted literature throughout the 19th century. Sure. And, yes. Yes. I do most of now, my year's best reading in in winter. Absolutely. Why would I do it now? It's like it's 25 degrees centigrade outside. It's bright and sunny. Oh yeah, right. Sure. There's not a cloud in the sky. See, this is why. This is why nobody wants to talk to you, Jonathan, yeah. because of this. This exact thing. <laughs> you know, all I think because my my uh, mom actually lives quite a lot north of here, so she's living in that 27 below zero without wind chill, and I just keep thinking Mars is nicer. <laughs> no, it's not. See, crazy sci-fi geek. I love you, but. The radiation would want to kill you every single second, and you'd be living in a hole in the ground. Well, I do now. <laughs> you know, and anybody who lives in New York knows from that. I think the most telling moment in terms of science fiction environments that I've seen in the last decade happened at a world con in Reno, Nevada, right? Now, first of all, no sane person apart from Ellen Clay just should go to Reno, Nevada, because surely nobody else likes it, right? Right. Re Ellen loves it. And she was having a ball, and she came up to me and said, this is the worst place I've ever been because, <laughs> hey, first of all, I did not know that casinos were the only place left in North America where you can legally smoke indoors, right? Uh -huh. so that's fairly disgusting. And then everything is sealed, air-conditioned because it's, it's 110 degrees outside. And it's all neon lighting indoors, fake environment. And she looked around and she said to me, she said, everybody's moaning and I don't understand. They're all science fiction geeks and they're stuck on what's basically a space station and they hate it. <laughs> and she had a total point. Yeah, that's true. Um, except no smoking on space stations. You would expect. No. I would well, hope. <laughs> 1950s space stations you could smoke. That's true. Well, and 1950s science fiction movies, everybody smokes. That's true. That's very true. One of the things I remember about, about Reno, and you're right about the outdoor atmosphere there, because it was it was over 100 every day. San Antonio was not a lot better. But because, as you know, I like to have a pipe once in a while, I would walk outdoors through the parking lot between the two buildings in, in, instead of through that sort of lifelock corridor they had. And <laughs> I couldn't get anybody to walk with me. It was like... You want it's like we'd better get supplies if we're walking that 500 yards without <laughs> That's right. protection. You have to get the mask. <laughs> you got to slip, slop, slap. <laughs> Put on the mirrored uh, um, suit that reflects all the lights, and yeah, yeah. You need sunscreen. You better take a water bottle because you could dehydrate as you walk across the walkway. But sure. Enough of this discussion of joyful. Sweetie <laughs> Let's get on to the meaty subject of the podcast, Gary. Okay, well, here's a, here's a meaty subject, and I have an ulterior motive for asking this because it leads to a question which I want to think about. But the question is a very simple one, and it's probably one we've addressed before. But it is this. 
of current science fiction writers, and let's talk about science fiction and not fantasy for reasons that will become obvious. Which one is likely to produce a book that wins, let's say, the Booker Prize or the Pulitzer? And which one is most likely to produce a book that lands number one on Amazon and the New York Times list? And the New York Times list. And or, whatever. A number one bestseller in science. Part, part of that goes back to the 70s and the 80s when the last uh, gasp of uh, Asimov and Clark were regularly on the on the bestseller list. As a, yeah. I, I don't know if they ever hit number one, but Asimov, <clears throat> Asimov and Clark, uh, in the waning years of their career, were always on the bestseller list. Okay, can I can I split this category wise? Are we going to do a could have, should have as well? That's a separate question, but we could do that because I mean I can think of people who could do either and those who should. Mm, yeah. yeah. Okay. You know, yeah. like for the Booker, could win, should win. Um. I, I actually reckon China Mieville possibly could. Yeah. He's enough yeah. of a golden boy, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, he has the right profile in terms of being loved in the British media and everything else. I actually think it's spectacularly unlikely, but could. Should someone like Mike Harrison or Stan mm. Robinson, who write really brilliant, substantial books. So that, those are my picks for the Booker. We'll come back to the New York Times. You, Kidge? Well, uh, Kidge? Yes. I mean, I, I actually, I think China sounds like a pretty good guess because, you know, because I don't know enough about the, the uh, Booker to understand the, the wheels within wheels that go there. But he is. He's very shiny. He's uh, He writes in ways that the bits that mainstream people don't understand seem sexy to them mm-hmm. as opposed to just annoying. And that's something that Stan Robinson does really well, too. It's like when when people don't get what he's doing. They don't care in the same way they do with somebody else. But I, I agree with you. I think Mike Harrison would be phenomenal and uh, has, you know, all of the the sort of grace of language and uh, insight that you would want to see from a Booker. So I guess I would I would agree with all three of those. I'm trying to think because you know the Booker, of course, it's like are there any women writers who would be sort of Booker ready? Who are science fiction, and that of course gets to be the problem, you know, coming up with be a problem. three yeah. of those things. And uh, it seems to be a problem, particularly in the UK, the number of science fiction uh, writers who are who have active careers as women seems to be diminishing in in, in the United Kingdom. I don't I don't know if that's true, if it's just how it's seen. But what I would say is that it's harder to immediately think of a substantial science fiction novelist who is female and who writes the kind of crossovery books i mean atwood surely i mean if, if atwood's writing yeah. science fiction then surely she is a prime candidate um and you know, obviously Dor- doris lessing probably was um le guin for crying out loud i mean obviously mm-hmm. not now because she's not really writing anymore but when she was right. writing she was an obvious obvious pick um and i suspect that we're going to sit, sit here uh, in a two hours' time, uh, long after the podcast is done, and go, damn, of course, so and so and so and so. Yes, yes, exactly. You know, I don't think Sherry Tepper's a real contender because I think her work's a bit too polemic, and I don't. Mm. So I don't think that would see her break out. Well, I also don't see how she would come to um, people's attention. Gwyneth Jones mm-hmm. is a terrific major novelist, but I think she's got the tendency to write the kind of science fiction that. The science stuff irritates people when they don't get it rather than right. they give it that pass that they give China that you mentioned, Kidge, which I think is about right. right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's a bunch of people who are possibly worthy, but whether they would get the attention, right. I don't know. The one name I would throw into that mix, and I, 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 I think may have come as close as anybody has in the last 10 years, would be Christopher Priest, um, who oh, yeah, seems to yeah. get a fair amount of mainstream attention He's read by he's, he's enough of a crossover that he's read by the kind of people who read Booker Award novels, uh, and he, his name comes up more often than anybody else in discussions of who should have been nominated for a Booker and look how they ignored us again. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's true. What about like Ian McDonald? I think he falls too far into the geek chasm. Yeah, you know, yeah. Um, that's so true. Um, okay, that's getting close to the issue I really wanted to get at with this, which is that he's too much of a he's too much of a science fiction writer. Yeah, 
is unapologetically science fiction. There may be brilliant imaginings of what in, in the Dervish House or Brazil or River of Gods of what other cultures might evolve like in the future. He's one of the first people to ask that question from outside the perspective of those cultures. And yet, by and large, he's perceived as a science fiction writer by almost everybody. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's because he is. I mean, he's a real propeller bean-wearing sci-fi guy. I mean, I don't think he literally wears propeller beanies, but what I mean is he's, he writing, at, he's writing at the core of the field. Exactly. Uh, and even a major novel, and I, I think The Dervish House is a major novel, even mm-hmm. that has enough of the stuff that I suspect wouldn't be you know, catnip to, to non-genre readers. It would be the opposite, uh, unfortunately. Um, and that, you know, that's the problem. And see, Stan does write, write as you say, um, in that, that area where it is more forgivable to actually include science fiction content mm-hmm. rather than a problem. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So, let, so I want to think for just a minute about that because, you know, I, th- I think that's true about China and Stan and probably some other people we can think about that they – that they do some kind of voodoo that makes their science fiction readable. And it's not just characterization, you know, it's not that they use the tools of the mainstream or the literary uh, fiction that makes them accessible. It's something else to do specifically with how they're handling their science. And I'm not sure what that is. And I'm hoping one of you guys has an idea. Because I want to be able to imitate that. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's not there's not a lot of science to speak of in China's work no. uh, it's true, at all. Yeah. Uh, and and yet it's got sort of sciencey feeling to it, even when it doesn't have science. Yeah. Well, and, and also, I mean, the books of his that would so that to date would most likely have crossed over would have been what something like the City in the City, maybe, which yeah. was just a you know it was yeah. a literary fan, fantastical experiment kind of a thing. And then um, I don't know why I'm blanking on the one about language. Um, uh, Embassy Town. Oh, yeah, Embassy Town. That Embassy would be the Town, other. Yeah. And there, the science fiction, any science element is kind of, it's described externally from a cultural perspective and the cultural impact of it rather than anything to do with this is how you immer and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Stan's a bit different. I mean, because, I mean, you, you can't look at a book like 2312 and say that he doesn't revel in the idea of building, you know, alternate worlds and you know his little sort of asteroids have been hollowed out and turned into different environments and talking to people about things like how uh heat expansion on rails drive a city across the surface of mercury mercury but somehow he manages to keep it this side of nerdy Mm -hmm. yeah and how is it he does that i don't know i don't know no if only we could we could bank it Oh, it would be great. Uh, a part, part of this, I suppose, has to do with specific kinds of talent. Uh, but I'm teaching a class now on sustainability and, and fiction. And I, at Stan's own suggestion, the novel of his from the Washington trilogy that I'm using is um, uh, 50, let's see, it's 40 cents, 50 degrees below, which is the middle novel in a trilogy, which sounds like an insane thing to do to a group of students. But his point was that the first novel, 40 Signs of Rain, really is a science fiction disaster novel. Uh, uh-huh. it's, it's accessible, it's fun, but the ideas he wants to get at, which are wonky ideas, they're, they're National Science Foundation policy ideas, they're political ideas, yeah. and they're, they're United Nations ideas, those are kind of embedded in the second volume. So for the purposes of my class, that novel is the most mainstream of the three in that trilogy. Um, uh-huh. Yeah. And strategically, I don't know if making the first novel a good science fiction adventure where Washington gets flooded and parts of California fall into the Pacific was a good idea. Um, <laughs> because it certainly attracted the science fiction readers. Um, but, you know, he's, he's, he did this with the Mars trilogy as well. The middle volume of the Mars trilogy is, is his political philosophy, essentially. Yeah. Um, well, and wasn't Pacific Edge the middle of the, the California books? No, final. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Because uh, the Gold Coast was the middle. Okay, yeah, that was it, yeah. Um, though perhaps an underappreciated book, I think, Pacific Edge. I, I, I adored it. I liked it because it was a, a true utopia, um, and it was a realistic utopia that wasn't built on an underclass, which all, you know, everybody sooner or later has to put in the disadvantaged people that support the overclass. Yeah. I mean... I th- so anyway, I just really liked it a lot because I thought it, it managed to write a utopian novel that was not utopian. Yeah. 
Well, I think that the whole closing line, I think, of the book where, where, you know, sums it up, I think, you know, where the lead character is playing baseball with his friends and, mm-hmm. or softball with his friends, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. I think the line is something to the effect of, of you know, after 20 years, that you know, he looked around and realized he was probably the unhappiest man alive and laughed. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. yes you know, exactly. he just, Stan just really knows what he's doing. But, I mean, I wondered why someone like Ian Banks never, never – really seem to push against the kind of Booker mainstream acceptance kind of thing, given what he did with his mainstream books. Yeah. Cause I you think, think that would make him more attractive. I mean, that they mm. can, that he is, he, he is provably familiar, uh, able to work in familiar terrain. Mm. Yes. I think the article, the article speaking of China that he wrote, I think it was for the guardian a couple of years ago where he said the real distinction it's not between genre and non-genre books, but between what he called the literature of recognition and the literature of estrangement, uh, uh-huh. or the yeah. way he put it in the essay, the, 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 the reader response of, ah, yes, versus, oh, my. Um, and Because the point he was getting at is that some of the um, bias in these awards, and we were picking on the Booker, but we could pick on the National Book Award or the Pulitzer or what, 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 what's the national award in Australia, Jonathan? Uh, it's the Moss Franklin Award, I think. Okay. Uh, and all of those tend to um, tend to ignore works that feel, that have the affect of the fantastic. By the Oh My books, as opposed to uh, as, as opposed to the uh, Ah Yes books, would include things like Moby Dick or Jane Eyre. Uh, oh yeah, all of yeah. Angela Carter. I mean, these are books that feel strange, that are that are that are, that assault you with a different view of the world than the one you thought you had, um, and they always seem to come out um, second, even if they're not overtly fantastic. They come out in second place to books that are comfortably. I recognize this. This is what life is like. I know these people, uh, and there's a level of comfort in that, which, which the um, estrangement literature challenges. And I think the point that China was making that was brilliant in that is that estrangement literature doesn't have to be science fiction or fantasy or horror. It just has to be strange. Yeah, I think that, that uh, you know, that rings a really strong bell for me because I have always read whatever I felt like. I wasn't an academic until very recently. Mm. And what I always read, and a lot of it was classics, was all this estranged literature. So it was always Tristram Shandy, or it was Beowulf, or it was Chaucer. Mm-hmm. It was always this stuff where there was something, and it was always the exotic pieces of Chaucer. You know, it was uh, I was always looking for the 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 wow, the the wonder of it. And maybe maybe the big awards are not comfortable with that sense of wonder. Maybe you know, no matter who wrote it. Maybe they would have just as much trouble with Hilary Mantel as they would with anybody else. Although she writes, you know, a lot of her stuff has that sense of wonder, but not all of it. It does. And she has won the Booker twice. And she has won the Booker twice, yeah. Um, I don't know. Uh, The the thing is, she's won the Booker twice for, for, for writing recognizable historical fiction. And historical fiction has... Odd relationships to fantasy and science fiction. I mean, yeah, really, definitely. It's secondary it, world fantasy. It really is. It really is. And and you, you could have written. This is an interesting sort of thought experiment. But if you had written both, bring up the bodies and um, uh, what was the first one? Wolf. Uh, Wolf. Wolf. If you'd Wolf, written both yeah. of those in a completely imaginary world, let's say a K.J. Parker kind of world, without any reference to Cromwell or actual English history. I don't think the novels, almost word for word, would have had a chance. Yeah, um, if you just changed all the names to, you know, fictional Argivia or right. something, you know. So you have, um, which is sort of the Jacqueline Carey Europe, you know, this, yeah. the notion. Almost like ours, but not, because it's just easier not to make it our world. But yeah, I, I mean, you would lose something just with something as simple as changing the names of everything. Is it re- the recognition and appeal factor? Hmm. I mean, because because one thing I wonder about is there's a great historical novel out now by uh, Nicola Griffith, Hild, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And she explained in a interview or something about it that one of the challenges with Hild is that no one's familiar with her her era, and so you have to actually spend a lot of time explaining it. Where in a book like Wolf Hall. You, People are already quite familiar with the milieu that you're that you're writing about, so you don't have to spend so much time explaining. You can get on with story and character and all those mm-hmm. kind of things. 
and obviously there's that 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 obviously the familiarity gives the well the author uh, something, but also makes it easier, more accessible, more familiar to the reader, I guess. I guess my feeling is that his yeah I think history validates um, fiction for mainstream readers in a way that other things like science, for example, doesn't. I mean, if Guy Kay, who has written a couple of really terrific historical yeah. novels, yeah. but who decided after he'd done all the research on Chinese history to not make them about China, but to make them about his imaginary kingdom. Uh, if those had been Chinese historical novels, would they have gotten more attention among mainstream critics and award givers? Well, I mean, I that's so hard because, you know, how do you, what do you compare it against? Jeannie Larson wrote really excellent yeah. You know, historical novel set in China that's the real China, except for these fantastic elements. But, you know, how do you compare the two? And I mean, how do you look at someone who's considered a major writer in our field, like Gene Wolfe, and right. see how he, because I, I cannot conceive of Gene Wolfe being nominated for one of those major awards. And it's no. not because I don't respect what he does. Mm -hmm. But there's something about uh, the way his work talks back into the field rather than out from it. Um, yeah. That's an interesting thought. That that makes me sort of think that that's part of it as well. You know, sort of. Uh, there's a feeling like I mean, say with a book like Twenty Three Twelve, right? Twenty Three Twelve doesn't feel like the field talking to itself. It feels like the field talking out to the world at large. You know, I mean, Stan is very very uh, clear that he's writing a, like about a world that you that you could conceive wanting to understand and live in. Mm -hmm. I think I think it's a, a key part of that mission, and he and he talks about wanting to paint believable, positive futures, I guess, without being Pollyannaish about it. Whereas, and then that means that you've got to open up the kind of story, the way you talk about technology, all those sorts of things, which stories that are aimed back in at the field don't necessarily have to do as much. In fact, arguably, they lose a certain thing when talking back into the field because they don't, you know, carry that inward looking gosh wow aspect to it mm. you know you're making me because i've never thought of it that way the notion that works talk into or out of the genre mm. um because that all of a sudden i can forgive margaret atwood much because hmm. <laughs> because she's speaking into the field from outside um you know, so so there, so the the fence between the field, between inside and outside, the membrane is permeable. But it's not just that we tend to point ourselves back inside. Some of us point ourselves outward, or some of our works point outward into the wider world. But then these outer works, these Paul Thoreau ozone and things like that, they are they are the mainstream world pointing in towards us. They get things wrong, but. But there is a point to it. There's an actual point. point to it besides they just want to play in our playground. I think, I think that, yeah, that's something that I've thought about a lot. And Ozone is one of my worst examples along with uh -huh. John Updike's Toward the End of Time. Um, Margaret Atwood, I think, has she, – she may be looking into our field with a kind of misinformed integrity – but at mm. least it's integrity. Um, yeah. I think Doris Lessing wrote science fiction works with integrity. She wanted to write science fiction works. Yeah. Um, I think the idea of a mainstream writer saying, I'll just dabble in this stuff because it right. looks easy. How hard is, can it be? How hard can it be? It's, um, and, and then there, there are people who, whose, whose science fiction works, whose first science fiction works, I really want to see. I really want to see Juno Diaz write his science fiction novel. And I know he yes. wants to write. Yes. Um, because you know they love this stuff and they grew up with this stuff and you can it, it permeates his work. Um, but then, oh, as far yes. as writing outside, wait, no, the field, I'm all excited. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think there are a lot of possibilities there. I mean, uh, you know, Michael Chabon keeps edging closer and closer to writing a full-fledged science fiction work, unless you count uh, the Yiddish Policeman's Union as being that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let me throw out another name. Uh, somebody simply because of his new book, uh, which will be out later this year, Paolo Bacigalupi, uh, the water knife coming out from Knopf, very respectable, very literary publisher, uh, looks like it's going to be a near future, uh, water wars thing, you know, Los Angeles versus Las, Las Vegas or whatever. 
Um, that seems to me to have some potential of being a bestseller and some potential of being uh, of gaining literary recognition. He's already got a National Book Award nomination for one of his young adult novels. That's true, yeah. On the other hand, young adult uh, or writing for a younger audience gives you lots of cover when it comes to awards. Well, that's true. Which that's sounds true. like a terrible thing to say and is not disparaging of young adult, just the way awards tend to function. And I, I could see why you would say that. Gary, why you would pick Paolo out because he's a very good writer and his books have been well-received well and the topic is kind of right. Uh, but I guess the name I'd throw back you back at you as a counter-argument would be J.G. Ballard. You know, there's nothing Ballardian about Bacigalupi. But um, if Ballard couldn't do it writing that kind of stuff, why would Bacigalupi be able to? Maybe timing? Good question. Yeah, good point. Yeah, maybe, yeah. I, I, I could and certainly Ball, see that. Ballard, Ballard did hit substantial literary recognition and, and, and sales with The Empire of the Sun. Yes. Admittedly, it was a non-fantastic book, but it was certainly a book full of Ballardian imagery. But then alter <laughs> alternately, Ballard could not, having got the recognition from Empire of the Sun, convert that into re similar recognition for his genre work. Not that I think he wrote that much after Empire of the Sun, so I'm not expert. No. But you know, if, if he'd come up with, I don't know, The Drowned World, an updated version of The Drowned World, after Empire mm -hmm. of the Sun, would you have seen that as being a ball as a Booker kind of contender? Probably. I don't know. That's a good question. Um. Particularly since the, you know, the Booker uh, jury change every year, but the kind of slant of it, the angle of it changes. And of course, the other factor in here to, to bear in mind, uh, and I don't know if you're aware of it, Kij, is that as of this year, I think it is, American books are eligible. Oh, I had no idea. Yeah, they oh, changed that's the rules. True, yeah. That'll be interesting. Very controversial. What if that'll change things? Tenor. I mean, um, I, I think it's a hugely controversial step within the, the confines of those who, who love or are aware of the, um, the the booker. But it does mean that you know the Stan Robinsons now are genuinely um, eligible. Mm-hmm. You know, so then it'd be a matter of looking around and going, if Jennifer Egan writes a slipstream genre novel could that win yeah yeah that's true or zadie smith, zadie smith isn't she writing a science fiction novel i think she is zadie smith is supposed to be writing a science fiction novel i've heard of that and and she's another one of those writers who from what i've read of her and about her and by her seems to have she seems to be very comfortable with the field um karen russell seems to be very comfortable with the field on the other yeah. hand not to be reductivist about gary and i'm sorry for interrupting but could you see a sifwa member winning the the booker Okay, that's a better way of asking the question. And I, and I don't say that as anything to do with Sifwa, just, yeah. just that it's a core, you know, the members of Sifwa are core genre writers rather than people who haven't been writing science fiction. That's the only thing, the reason I mention right. them, yeah. Can you see that well, happening? No. <laughs> no. Again, going back to the should, I'm pretty sure, I'm, I, I, I'm, I don't know this for certain, but I suspect Gene Wolfe is a Sifwa member, but he probably won't win the booker for the reasons you've mentioned. Mm -hmm. yep. It just seems probably it's of course it's like an I mean that's an interesting take on it but it's an awkward question because you know Margaret Atwood, Atwood could be a member of Sefo if she wanted to be all these people could be members so you know Sadie Smith could be a member but I but to the point of your question that you know what about what we call the core people but then how do we start chopping that you know is Stan Robinson a core you know it's sure. I, so, uh, um, so I, you know, I don't know. Uh, it would really depend on who happened to be a member of CIFWA that year. <laughs> would it be easier if I say, you know, someone who's going to, by default, send their short stories originally to, to Asimov's rather than the New, York, the New Yorker? Right, right, I got it. Then my, my answer mm -hmm. is not yet. You know, um, and I, I don't see that. I, I struggle to see that happening. No matter how good they are. Yeah. No, not yet, you know, because they, because they will never get over that stigma you know no matter how good they are the booker at least for a while for all of those high level awards are just not going to be able to see past that you know so and not just you know that they won't see the credit that they will see say that. and say but but there's a flavor i think that comes with um writing if your first market the first place you send stuff is the new yorker there's a flavor that is different no matter what your content is than if your first market is clark's world that's probably true, but I don't think the Booker Award is going to 
know things like that. They're no, no, I'm sure them. they won't. But they, may, they may be able to taste the difference, even if they can't identify the difference. Does that make sense? It, it does, though. It still kind of leaves me wondering. You know, the really awkward, painful question in here is, you know, if you look at the group of people that we're talking about as writers, like the work they're creating, are they creating work? that should be considered as possible winners of the Booker. I mean, I look back and I think in 1973, if the Booker had existed, and I don't know if it did, but I suspect it may or may not have. Um, well, yeah, it did. So J.G. Farrell wins for the Siege of Krishnapur, right? Mm -hmm. Following up John Berger for G and preceding Nadine Gordimer as the conservationist. So those, they, they, they win. And Bob Silverberg puts out Dying Inside. Mm, yeah. You know, yeah. shouldn't something like that have been considered? Or you know, or would its equivalent today be considered? Yeah, like, that's... What would its equivalent today be? I don't know. I mean, uh, the, the test case, there there are test cases out there. Um, there is... Um, everybody's wanting to see the Kelly Link novel, for example. And Kelly yeah. is... is actually tread a very fine line, getting a lot of good attention from the New York Times Book Review and the New Yorker. I don't know if she's been published in the New Yorker, but um, that's the sort of thing where as much as she calls herself a science fiction writer, as much as she goes to conventions, as much as she loves all of us, she's not somehow seem, seemed to be tainted by, by that brush in the way that, um, let's say, Nancy Cress has, who's another mm. terrific writer who I don't think is... Likely to be in line for this simply because of her of her history of being uh, in genre writing for in genre. Yeah, I I'm sitting here in silence thinking about this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was gonna say, I mean, I guess the thing is that Nancy Cress, who's a terrific writer, sits squarely in the tradition of Bob Silverberg or somebody. Yeah, exactly. And so I can totally see why she's not Kelly has always felt like a New Yorker writer who happened to want to write some right. of the kind of things that were of interest to us rather right, right. than someone in the same she, tradition. Right. She's a New Yorker who's a fan, not, you Except, know, yeah. a fan who's writing New Yorker stories. And you only have to go well, back okay, to her okay. first first short story collection, though, Gary, right, and look at some of the stories in there, the one about Imelda Marcos's shoes, yeah. which are all experimentally structured and all this kind of stuff and are brilliant, uh, but they're not really at the core of the field. Well, uh, you, know, you could say the same. You could say the same thing about some of Kidge's best stories. You mentioned experimentally structured. You can't get much more well, experimental not, than story kit. Yeah, but I'm not at the core of the field either. No. Okay. No, true. I feel like Kelly and I are both, um, all, and I think we maybe sort of. I mean, I know that I like where she's at, but I think. I mean, I don't think that you can. We, we, while we uh, may or have been members of Safwa, um, we are not necessarily Safwa, you know, that it's like, do we send our stuff first to Clark's World or, or to Asimov's or do we send it first to New Yorker? I feel like we're as likely to send it first to New Yorker as yeah. to Asimov's. Yeah. And I think so that, that when you, and when you right. mention a New Yorker kind of writer, when you mention either Kids Your Stories or some of Kelly's stories, they're New Yorker stories in a sense they're New Yorker stories in the sense of the 1970s New Yorker, which published Donald Barthelme, or in the right. sense of the 1950s New Yorker that published Shirley Jackson, but not necessarily in the New Yorker of the moment. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I think we're more like in Tin House. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. True. You know, if you look at awesome. like George Saunders, who's you know sort of not really over the field. I don't know. Does anybody know if George Saunders has any connection to the field? Does he read it? Does I've never met him. I've never talked no. to anybody who's talked. All about I can say about George Saunders is he's always been happy to have his stories appear in bests of the year when any number of the New Yorker writers are not. Uh huh. Uh -huh. You know the Alice Hoffmans and uh, Jennifer uh, Egan's and those sort of mm -hmm. people who have written stuff that quite rightly could be considered some of the best science fiction of the year opt not to have their work appear in, quote-unquote, those sort of venues. Mm. That's interesting. You know, which is a cure, an interesting thing. And actually, uh, nor does China. Huh. Really? Yeah. Hmm. So take that as you will. 
Well, I'll Should always be. say yes. <laughs> <laughs> Jonathan, I'll always say yes. <laughs> Thank you very much. I, I guess the thing that's interesting it's about small. this field is that, um, and this goes back to what you, you, you're doing, Jonathan, what Rich and, and, and Gardner are doing, and I guess David's not doing anymore. Um, there is the Best American Short Stories volume, which is intermittently interesting depending entirely on who edits it for the given year. But outside of that, um, and outside of single author collections, where are these people going to get their stories ever reprinted, if not in the Best of the Year anthology? And, and our field is practically the only one, it seems to me, that has at least more than one Best of the Year anthology. We I value think, those anthologies in a way yeah, other fields don't, don't. I just don't think they think that way about reprints. I mean, we think about it. You know, I we think in terms of selling a story two or five or ten times, but I think mm -hmm. most of those stories, they don't expect. You know, when it does hit and it gets into all of the, uh, you know, the uh, freshman software English manuals and the Norton yeah. Guide and stuff like that, that's that's marvelous, but that happens to one story, two stories in a career. Um, whereas for us, you know, there's an we have these places where you can sell, and so we, I think we tend to think more about reprint than mainstream would. I think there's another fundamental difference. I think that science fiction is a blue-collar field uh, on some level. The, the history of it is about working. It has a union, you know, um, that kind of a thing. And so <clears throat> I've, I've heard any number of writers say when it comes to reprints, well, it may only be a penny a word, but it's, extra, it's money for nothing, and that's great. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. But if you talk to somebody from the literary side of the field, they're artists, and they're looking for $1,000 to reprint their story, or it might dilute what they're doing. Mm. Because that's right. what they would get at the official you know, the payment rate. I know that here in Australia, the Australian Society of Authors has a really quite impractical minimum, minimum uh, you know, rate per word for uh, reprints. As for this exact reason, it's like they see it as being... Well, art, and, and, and you know, it's not about making profit, but you, these people make money, and this is their chance to make money, so that's that. Right. You, it's a completely different philosophy of approach, you know, approaching it. Yeah. Well, you know. I want to step back or step sideways to the other half yep. of the topic we started 50 minutes ago. Sure, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because we were talking about, you know, what? who do we think, what do we think that is science fiction is the next, um, you know, booker or when is our big chance? Um, but we didn't talk yet about, you know, who, who, do, who or what do we think is going to be the number one New York Times bestseller? I was going to bring that up right now myself. Thank you, kid. <gasps> Genius. Uh, it's on my mind, too, because it's, it's such a no-brainer. It'll only take about three minutes. Well, yeah, again, the, the point I was making then is that if Heinlein had, well, I don't know if Heinlein made the bestseller list. He probably did with novels that should not have never, should not have ever been there. But like I said, Clark's 2001 sequels were always on the bestseller list. When, when, when Asimov started knitting the foundation and the robot stories together, they yeah. always made the bestseller list. Who's, who could do that now? And we're not well, allowed to mention Scott Card because he blew his chance. He blew his chance. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I, I feel like it... it I, it, I it, again, because I'm always about, you know, defining your terms, but... Um, there are lots of people who make it onto the New York Times bestseller list that are science fiction people, aren't there? There are quite a few. I mean, <clears throat> I mean, don't we see? Don't we see uh, Kim Stanley Robinson get on the list? Don't we see people like that? I don't know. I, I John Scalzi last year. Scalzi certainly. Yeah. And, and uh, I would say if somebody, my, my question was, who could actually hit the top of the New York Times bestseller list or the top of the Amazon bestseller list? I'll, I'll, I'll tell you now did. who the next two are, most likely. Okay. Brandon Sanderson for his next incredibly thick fantasy novel. Oh, but that's fantasy, not science okay, fiction. Okay, and let's, let's look. James okay. Corey for his Star Wars novel. Oh, you think? Oh, Star Wars novels. Okay. Right. Yeah, once you pull tie-ins out, because I meant to say no tie-ins, because those are easy. Those are no-brainers. Yeah. But or to right, be kinder, they're actually more about the franchise than about the writer, right? Right, right. It doesn't matter who's writing it, really. Or it does, but not as much as, you know, maybe it would. Um the uh, so if you think about, it, I think you could be right. I mean, certainly Brandon Sanderson is going to make it there, and the yeah. fantasy often gets there. We see that all the time. I worked in bookstores for my sins back in the '80s. I ran mm -hmm. bookstores, and 
there was a lot of fantasy in the top 10, you know, cause I changed the, the shelves every week. There was yeah. a lot of fantasy and there was often one or two pieces of science fiction. And you're exactly right that it was like Asimov. It was uh, Arthur C. Clarke. It would be, right. I think there was one Larry Niven, you know, so, but it was always there. It was um, on a, any given top 10, there would be maybe four genre works, not counting Stephen King who always right. had like seven of the other roles. But uh, so, I mean, it's like they've always been there. You know, who's who of this batch? You know, who of these and, and, people? And, and the Larry Niven novels were, were, were the sort of big disaster things like Footfall, and they were not yes. ring yeah. novels. Um, so, I mean, right. there are any number of people who have gone after that. I mean, Larry Niven clearly went after the best solo list in Purnell, and, and they, they hit it by writing essentially formulaic novels. Um, occasionally... Uh, the tie-in novels will, will make it, and tie-in novels are great because if you're a writer who simply writes them to make money, then you can put on your resume for the rest of your life, New York Times best-selling author. Uh-huh. But also but, that can rub off on you. I mean, I, I know people that's rubbed off on, and that has changed the sales of their non tie-in work quite considerably you know yeah. uh, I think Sean Williams is a good example of that I think if you look at uh, Kevin Anderson who you know, made quite a career for a while of writing tie-ins and then turned somebody else's franchise into a tie-in world um, you know he, he managed to really build his, his readership that way I think if you I think you can do that if your own fiction is allied in some recognizable way with the tie-ins you write, because I don't think, for example, that Elizabeth Hand had that experience. Because, uh, as, I'm, as I recall, a, a novel like Mortal Love, which I think is a terrific novel, uh, wonderfully you know, Baroque Victorian fantasy novel, and, yeah, it says New York Times bestsellers, but somebody who read the Boba Fett novel is going to be really <laughs> puzzled by that. I'm going to be kind of puzzled. There is that. You can't really expect uh, to, ha to have that crossover Though, as I've said previously in this podcast, I did briefly try to agitate to get Gene Wolfe to write a Star Wars novel, which I think is a still tragedy that it never happened. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it's like if Ted Sturgeon can write a Star Trek, you know, <laughs> everybody else can do one, too. Yeah. But, but it's interesting but, when that doesn't work What people. I was talking about anyway, was yeah. a novel as a science fiction novel. It's not a tie-in. It's not a fantasy novel. It's not a franchise novel. It's just a novel. Who can write one that will hit the number one spot on the bestseller list? You know, I look at that Paolo book and I think, yeah, could be because the topic, I mean, it's everybody in L.A., everybody in the Southwest is going to be interested in it. And I, yeah. I kind of feel like it's the perfect mix of, you know, a writer who has he has this wonderful, you know, sort of splash right now. So this will be his first big book for a little bit. And I think yeah. it's. I mean, I think it has the potential to be that book, depending on what his publisher does. I think that's the key question. And this is why this whole thing about who's going to write the number one bestseller is unfair. It depends entirely on what a publisher does with a book. It's so true, yeah. And no matter how good the book is, if they don't get enough copies moving, if they don't print it, uh, there are any number of stories. We could all pass along stories of books that didn't make the bestseller list simply because the initial print run wasn't big enough. Yeah. And the velocity yeah, of sale. Yeah, it dropped off died. the bottom because they ran out. Yeah. yeah. There's a, that certainly would happen. And uh, um, I don't think they make that kind of mistake anymore because I think it's so carefully controlled, you know, that they would never let that happen. But it's interesting. What, what, never, let it, never let it run out of uh, copies I don't think of the book. They would ever let you know, I don't. Well, they did though with Paulo. You're right. They didn't expect it with Paulo, but I think most of the time it's so carefully crafted what goes well, to the top. No, well, well you know? Paulo was, was an exception in the sense that they didn't expect it, but there were small press and probably didn't weren't they well set up have, for yeah. it anyway. Whereas if, they couldn't if have that, taken the risk. They couldn't have printed enough, printed enough copies uh, yeah, without true. risking their entire enterprise. Whereas you have to assume that Knopf will fill every major sales channel with the ability to buy the book. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Another, a different example, although it's nonfiction, uh, is um, was Julie Phillips, Phillips' biography of James Tiptree Jr., which got a front-page New York Times book review review. It was terrifically successful. I think the first edition of I don't know some small smaller number than you would expect. I don't want to quote the number because Julie told it to me. 
Um, and it, they went back and reprinted and went back and reprinted. If if the various reprints over that six and eight month period had all been sold within the first few weeks of publication, it would have been on the bestseller list. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it should have been. It was a terrific biography. Um, but that's not how things work. I mean, I do think that Scalzi remains a. I don't know. About, possibly he could write a book that will top the New York Times bestseller list. It's a little unlikely uh, because most of the science fiction, the subjects of most science fiction books strike me from a slight distance as being the kinds of things that would graze the bottom of the list rather than top it. I mean, you're right, kids, yeah. the, pow- the, su- the subject matter of Paolo's book and the way he'll phrase it, I'm sure, are such that it could well appeal to a really mass audience. But the rest of it, it tends to be slightly narrower appeal unless it gets that boost from something like a franchise or something. Well, Scalzi, yeah. I think, is the most likely candidate I can think of for actually hitting that. And I think it's partly because um, partly because of the success of Red Shirts. He can write light science fiction. He can write humorous science fiction. He can tap into a vein that did get Douglas Adams on the New York Times bestseller list. And it's, not, and it's hard to do. I mean, there just aren't that many light science fiction writers. There's, you know, humorous fantasy, I think, right. more. Well, although Terry Pratchett's got that sewed up right now <laughs> but well, i mean I, yeah, I think part 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 of one of the rules which i'm making up as we go along is that we have to, <laughs> we have to eliminate brand names i mean terry pratchett is terry pratchett neil gaiman is neil gaiman stephen king is stephen king stephen king can write a science fiction novel that'll hit number one and nobody will even notice it's a science fiction novel well right. that's not true well, this, uh, no no i'm going to disagree oh yeah, I am. I'm going. I'm going to disagree. I can cite an example, and it depends how you dress it up. Stephen King writes science fiction novels that are horror novels, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. If Stephen yeah. King wrote a pure quill science fiction novel, you know, a a space opera novel, say, I don't think you could say that it would reliably sell. And the example I will cite will be Stephen R. Donaldson. Really? Who? Mm-hmm. Is a was an enormous bestseller with the first two Thomas Covenant trilogies. Followed them with a gap into disaster series, which sold very poorly indeed. The world did not follow him into space, you know. And so I'd be quite skeptical that if Stephen King decided to write his version of a pure quill hardcore space adventure story, that the audience would follow in big numbers. I don't think they would. I don't think he could write that science fiction story without there also being something that the reader would perceive as horror. Not to say he'd be writing a horror story, but I have to think that there would be something for the reader to hook onto. With the Donaldson, when he switched like that, fantasy and science fiction, there's a weird sort of, I mean, the fantasy readers are going to walk into a science fiction story and there's nothing to get a hook into. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Um, which I th- So I think that's maybe not a, a pure comparison. Um, the book I'm working on right now, to not to talk about me, <laughs> uh-huh. the book well, I'm working on right now is sort of a fantasy. Well, it's not really a fantasy. It's, it's actually a hidden science fiction uh, where you don't know it's science fiction until the end. And when I first pitched it, I pitched it as something that was going to look a lot like fantasy, and then if I ever wrote a second book, it was going to suddenly turn into hard science fiction. And um, my then agent at that point said, so you plan on antagonizing all your readers in a two-book series. <laughs> and I thought, and the point was true that science fiction and fantasy, it's like, there's, it's hard to hook back and forth. People may like them both, but it's really hard if somebody's really invested. Whereas I think with Stephen King, anything he wrote, if it had even the slightest bit of macabreness anywhere in it, your reader would go, oh, okay, it's science fiction. It looks like the pure quill, but look at, here's this creepy moment here, mm. you know, or I'm claustrophobic reading about the halls. So therefore there is a horror element. Horror, because it's more of a mode than a genre, I think, is something that you can transfer across anything. I think that's true, but I think also that uh, novels like his novel about the Kennedy assassination is a time travel novel that is, I've not read it. As far as I know, it's not especially a horror novel. It's just a terrifically gripping, suspenseful narrative that takes you through what to most of us in science fiction is a cliche situation. Uh, novels like Tommyknockers and It are both essentially alien invasion novels. In those cases, you're absolutely right. There's an enormous amount of horror, and somewhere at the end of it, there's a bit of hand-waving that involves science fiction. Uh, 
but it's clear that the science fiction is not it, the purpose of the novel. And even even if you had written those novels that the science fiction put, you know, if you foregrounded the science fiction farther and farther forward, there is a line at which perhaps the reader would stop reading. But I think it is way, way into science fiction territory. Yeah. I don't know. Jack McDevitt, and I, I'm blanking on the title, but Jack McDevitt, as I, as I recall, wrote a novel that had essentially the same initial situation as... Stephen King's The Tommyknockers. And what Stephen King did with it was to exploit the viscerally disgusting things that happened to the characters as a result of that. that. And what Jack McDevitt did is what any science fiction writer would, would do. And I'll have to look up the title because I can't remember what it was. It was a pretty good Jack McDevitt novel, but it went into science fiction. It didn't go into the direction of horror. And if he'd wanted to be a, you know, a Stephen King kind of bestseller, maybe he should have gone in the horror direction. Well, then he would have lost his science fiction readers. <laughs> well, then he would have lost his science fiction readers. There you go. So. And in, in fairness, since he probably was would be selling it to the same publisher, the same publisher would have tried to sell it to the same, his, his science fiction readers. It may have been Ancient Shores, but I don't want to yeah, yeah. Uh, commit myself to that. But the point is, there is that problem, and this, this is kind of getting at the basic point that, um, that, that's that been bothering me a little bit, is what is the position of science fiction uh, in terms of cultural geography i guess because uh it's not it's not a bestseller science fiction is not best-selling fiction it might be best-selling movie making but that's a separate issue and it's not literary fiction it's not booker prize winning fiction characteristically it's not pulitzer uh it's in a third area and that third area i think is something we haven't defined very well um you know there's the another oh go ahead go ahead I was, I, was, I was going to de define it as something like genre culture because the beginning of the study of popular culture, which is now a big thing in academia, the, the phrase that was used back in the 50s was mass culture. Mass culture was enormous bestsellers, big hit movies. Mass culture was the Lord of the Rings movies. Uh, mass culture was you know um, TV series and so forth and enormous bestsellers. Um, popular culture isn't that popular culture is a bunch of little dookies or fiefdoms yeah yeah and, and literary culture is over here on the other side science fiction is caught somewhere in the space between mass culture where it does not get enormous bestsellers on a regular basis and literary culture where it does not get major literary awards on a regular basis and how you know, we I, identify that culture is interesting i like to think Right when you're talking about this, I like to start thinking about um, romance and mystery as well, because right and yes, there are best-selling romance novels. There's always something on the very, very top that's like a romance writer. But right. you know the bulk right. of rom but again, you know, it's like you're not buying you're not buying a romance novel. You're buying Nora Roberts. The IP right. is Nora Roberts, and you will read anything she writes. And si similarly, Stephen King and Neil Gaiman, but or Nicholas Sparks. Uh, Right, yeah, these people that it does, they are their own intellectual property. Um, so I, I think rom we can learn something by looking at how where romance is positioned as well, because romance is not, it has stuff occasionally on the bestseller list. Sometimes it goes to the very top, but then, as I said, I think it's an IP, it's an it's an author name. Um, it never wins awards. Um, when it's really well done, it's people say it's not really romance. Um, people from romance write towards the outside world, and uh, people, and they also write towards themselves. Um, and occasionally, somebody says, "Oh, I'm going to write a, a love story." You know, they never say, "I'm going to write a romance," but they say, "I'm going to write right. a love story." And then they write, a, you know, mainstream or literary people will write a love story. Um, so, I mean, I feel as though we can learn something by comparing the plight of romance with the plight of science fiction. And they're both, of course, marginalized, and they're both sort of associated with a, a non-intelligentsia. Non neither of them targeted towards the, the intelligentsia. They appeal to a non-discriminating readership, more or less? Well, and yet that wouldn't be true because if you know anybody who reads romances or know anybody who reads science fiction, you know that they're very discriminating. It's just that um, they're not perceived as such. I, think. I, I, guess, I, I guess I meant discriminating by title. I've got a friend who actually lives down the hall from me who writes romances, writes historical romances for Harlequin. And the sense I get from her 
is that the average romance novel published by a brand name publisher like Harlequin is probably going to do better than the average science fiction novel published by a quote brand name publisher like Tor. I think that's well, Harlequin, though, how uh, you have to step away from the series because Harlequin has the series sales are anomalous. They aren't like any of any other kind well, of sale in the yeah. field, right? you know, in publishing. Yeah. But even so, I mean, that may be just arguing numbers, you know, that they like, sell 50,000 and we sell five. Well, you, know, right. you can make a living as a Harlequin writer, you can't, you know, by writing 10 of them a year or something like that. And you can make a living as a science fiction writer if you write, say, three of them a year. I'm to, I'm, I'd like to think that's true, but I could be wrong. I don't know. So I anyway, I just, I just feel like there's something telling about that moment, uh, which is uh, that that third space into which science fiction drops, into which romance drops, and into which even mysteries drop, although they have a different relationship with the literary world than either of the other two genres do. It seems to me that in mysteries, you've got an occasional Dennis Lehane novel or a Patricia Cornwell novel or a P.D. James novel. That Janet will hit Ivanovich. The, yeah, exactly. Janet Ivanovich, uh, uh, who, Kathy Reichs. A lot of those things hit the major portion of the bestseller list. You find a lot more mysteries on bestseller lists than you do science fiction novels. That's true. And you will never see them on an awards ballot, ever. No, no. They have the same problem that science fiction writers do. And maybe more, actually. I mean, uh -huh. certainly series mysteries. I don't think you would ever see a series mystery on an award ballot. That's which true. Which is a pity. <laughs> it's, it's too bad. Yeah, there's some I, wonderful I, stuff. I remember years ago, once I was on a radio show with, with P.D. James. And she was as distinguished an elderly literary statesperson of British literature as you could find. And for a while there in the 70s, people were thinking, okay, P.D. James is somebody who has a shot at the booker. I mm -hmm. don't know if she ever got one, but I doubt it. But she was always writing bestsellers. P.D. James mm -hmm. did not ever win the booker. Okay, good. Good? Well, not good. Good, good <laughs> in there. She was an excellent writer. I mean, she was, but she, she, she wrote, you know, a series of murder mysteries about uh, Inspector Adam Dogley. So, as far as the book is concerned, it's exactly what Kidge was saying. It's part of a series. Yeah, it could never exist. I mean, it, it, right. it's, it's not part of the literary conversation. It's part of something else. Even exactly. though I'll bet you anything, you know, the majority of jurors over the, the centuries have been reading her and loving her. Probably. And, and never for a moment thinking that, well, this is, this is something which I should perhaps allow to bleed into my other life as a Booker judge. Right, right, exactly. There is a blood-brain barrier between genre and literary, which <laughs> we it's might true. like to deny, but seems to be there. <laughs> if you say so. Ah, you know, we're coming to the end of our time, believe it or not. We've talked about bestsellers and bookers. We didn't get around to talking about animals. Maybe no, next time. Which, which is, you know, sort yeah. of an allusion to another topic that we didn't get to listeners, but that's how that goes. But yes, maybe another time. Maybe when, you know, the, you know sort of the ice has thawed slightly there in Kansas. And things have yeah, so you're saying June or something. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, the thing is, Jonathan, that those of us in the American Midwest can't say to you, "Wait till you get winter," because when you get winter, it goes down to what, like 65 degrees or something, and it no, never freezes. They have to put sh shoes with toes in them on. Exactly, it's you know, they they they, <laughs> they suddenly have to it's give up their flip flops for socks for a week. Socks. Yes. You know, I, I only own one sweater, but I, I, I have it for when I go overseas. Oh, snap. Boy, that's painful to think about. But, yeah, uh, it would be fun to talk about um, animals another time. There's so many topics. Yes. So just keep inviting me, and I'll just keep talking. Okay. Keep, we will keep <laughs> inviting you. You're delightful. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank and you all y'all, too. So. Yeah. Well, on that cheery note, thank you, kids, for joining us once again. And thank you so much. And Gary, depending on my commitments next weekend to see Bruce Springsteen, who I value more highly than this podcast, I will, I will record with you then. Fine. Maybe I'll go see the Lego movie. 
You do that. Yeah, we're I heard it's great. It's getting great reviews. If I'd known, I might have fit, fit, you know, factored that into my you know, time next weekend when I fly all the way to Melbourne to, um, you know. Oh, yeah. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well. Until then, until next time, then. Thank you both. All right. We'll thank talk to you. Thank you. Again.